Pastor Matt will be finishing his sermon series on the marks of the church this morning. Uh, so if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, uh, starting in verse 1, that's on page 871, that's 871 in the Bibles in front of you, if you would like to grab one of those and follow along. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his just judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. All right, welcome. Uh, but I'd like to pray in a second before I do. Uh, some of you are on church emails, and we were given a teaser that a baby being adopted on Friday was going to get more than an initial. So do we get the name? Jackson. Baby Jackson came home again. Yay! <laughs> Can't send teaser emails without, you know, follow-up. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to uh, have the word, um, that you are a God who doesn't leave his people in the dark, but you speak to them. You're not uh, what some, some religions think God is, some sort of elephant, and we have only can touch a piece of him, a tail or a leg or a trunk, uh, but we believe that our God speaks and communicates who he is and what he is like and how we can know him and how we can walk with him and this is one of your many good gifts to which we give you thanks, and we pray now that we would have ears to hear and a heart to receive what your word has for us today. We thank you for uh, just your mercies uh, to the Lear family, and we pray a blessing on Jackson, that he would come to know you and love you and just be a servant of yours for many, many years to come. We think of uh, just all the different people in this church who have grown up and who are growing up in this church, and we just thank you for the privilege it is to commend your works from one generation to another. Pray that you would bless this work, bless the work of our hands in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I love, I, I do love Thanksgiving. I, I love eating. 
and I like, I like the people I sit around and get to hear. Many times, I, some of these people I don't see until, you know, once a year or on a few occasions. And um, some of you guys know that uh, Thanksgiving was set as a specific date during the uh, reign or the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and in his proclamation he, he called this to be set apart for his words, quote, a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And so thanksgiving at its best is, uh, is gratitude. Uh, there's gladness. There's this marveling at all of God's graces and mercies. Uh, but it's also something shared, right? Thanksgiving at its best is you're hopefully not alone. I know that some of you have seasons where you're alone, and, but Thanksgiving at its best is when you're gathered around family and friends and you're able to look back over the year and just celebrate together and be thankful together. And that's part of the way people long, to, long for this holiday to come around. You know, the pressure of presence is off the table and what's on the table is food, right? So that's good. Uh, but the, the passage that we're looking at says that there's something greater Something greater is coming, something sweeter, a meal of separation that will leave our greatest holiday memories in the dust. And it's coming. It's coming. We've been in a sermon series on the marks of the church, and primarily we've looked at what God asks his people to do as a church in this time, in this season. But today we're looking ahead to what the church will one day be. Where is this all heading. And if there's one word for me that describes what's going on in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10, it's this exaltation. That's where the church is moving. We are moving toward exaltation. A definition of exaltation is a feeling of triumphant elation or jubilation, rejoicing especially as the result of a success. Every so often, a new president gets inaugurated, and they do this, I think, on January 21st-ish at the, when the president begins, and they gather around the National Mall, and there are great crowds and speeches and, and music, and especially if your candidate has just been elected, it is overwhelming to think that a new rain has come, a new day is dawning, and you, there's just joy, and it's exciting. In some ways, uh, someone pointed out in our small group this week that this is somewhat what's happening at the end of the age, is it's the greatest rally of all time where the true king of kings is rightly recognized for who he is, and his reign is now going to move, move about unhindered in the universe. Exaltation. Exaltation. And there's two major aspects of this exaltation in our text. The first one is both joyous but also sobering because it is an exaltation over our enemy's demise. It is an exaltation over our enemy's demise. Notice verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard. Who's the I? So the eye of this book is the Apostle John. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we realize that John is one of the last living apostles of Jesus, one of the ones who was in Jesus' earliest ministry, 
one of the, the fishermen who was called to leave behind their nets and come forth to fish for men, fish for people. And later in his life, he has a revelation from Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, John, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So John is given a vision, a revelation of things to come. These are the things that will occur. And so one of the last visions he sees is this one, verse 1. He says he, sees, he has a vision which involves some hearing. I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now, one of the things that's so wonderful about the book of Revelation is it's so overwhelming that the Apostle John sounds like a teenage girl. All throughout the book, it was like this, and it was like that, it was like this. It was so overwhelming. He has to use similes because he doesn't know how to describe all that he's seen. So he, he's saying it was like a stadium of joyous fans crying out. I've been to Jack Trice Stadium with Iowa State a few times when they actually played a Big 12 foe and won. It's rare, I know. But there's something about that moment when everyone is cheering for the same team that it's just overwhelming. I went to Iowa State cheering for the black and gold, and by the time I finished my graduate, graduated from Iowa State, it had stolen my affections because the crowd had brought me in, right? In some ways, the crowd that John is hearing and now is reporting to us, it's trying to draw you in. It's trying to draw me in to this exaltation that we, we worship the God now who we will worship forever later. And so this is what he heard. This is what's going to happen. They cry out, hallelujah. That means praise Yahweh, the one true God. Praise Yahweh, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh, the one true God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned. He has brought justice on the great prostitutes who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So the enemy for which the people are exulting over and for her demise was this woman called the prostitute or sometimes called the whore in some translations. And it's referring to this enemy of God that was introduced in, John, in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, the, she's sometimes called the whore of Babylon or the prostitute of Babylon. Uh, we read about her in John 17, verses 3 through 6. It says, The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. 
She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Verse 18, it says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So on one hand, Babylon, or this great prostitute, it's a sinful city. But more than that, Babylon is a city that is, uh, that is marketing in wickedness. That's what she does. That's what she offers. She markets in wickedness. And then if you read uh, chapter 17 and 18, she markets her wares to the, the, the globe. So Babylon is the epitome of the sinful city, but she's marketing her wares. She's offering her services to anyone that will come and buy and transact business with her. They, she persuades people that hope lies in everything besides the one true God. So she's marked by blasphemy. That is, she does everything she could, can to undermine God. And so if you read in chapters 17 and 18, you hear some of her lies. Babylon tempts us to, to love luxury. Babylon markets in pleasure and adultery. She says, trust your feelings. Satisfy your longings. Why wait? You know, it's interesting, there was a famous atheist writer named Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century, and uh, one of his more famous quotes is this. He says, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invest? Or I think it's what we have to invent so what Nietzsche recognized in his day is when you kill off the one true God, you still need things to get, grant you peace. That's what atonement is. You're still going to contrive ways to be happy. You're still going to have sacred games. You're still going to look for comfort. And what the revelation that John says is the epitome of this is Babylon, this prostitute who, uh, like any prostitute, it gives you a hint what she's like. She offers counterfeit goods at a deadly price. She dresses herself up as attractive, alluring, and inviting, but in the end, she brings only sorrow, dissatisfaction, and death. Notice that it said in verse 6 of John 17, he said, she, it says, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Also, in, back in chapter 19, verse 2, it talks about um, one day Jesus Christ will avenge on her the blood of his servants. So not only does she uh, offer her wares to pull people away from God, not only does she try to offer her uh, various assortments of goods and delights to keep people far from the Lord, it says she also seeks to destroy Christianity and to take the lives of Christians. Sometimes that's literally taking their lives. There is a long history of people killing those who profess Christ. But if they can't, if she can't kill them literally, she'll kill them with their reputation. She'll kill them with her lusts and her lies as well. 
And so she's a deadly foe, and she's succeeded in, um, she's succeeded in capturing many in her grasp. Um, it's tempting to think Babylon is some future entity. I think that there might be a great Babylon to come that will be e- even more the epitome of evil, but I think Babylon is a city alive and well today inviting you in, offering you some counterfeit good and some counterfeit God to see if she can trap you in her web. But one day, she will be destroyed. And heaven rejoices. This is a celebration that this evil foe will have an end. It says in verse 3 of chapter 19, and again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's speaking of an eternal, ongoing, never-ending punishment, a consequence for what she has done. If you turn back to chapter 18, verse 8, we hear about her demise with these words. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Verse 10, terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Now, why, this is, this is the key issue, why are the people exulting? I mean, this is a very sobering end for Babylon, and I would say all of her servants. Why, why are people exulting? I think we have an indication of it in verse, at the end of verse 1, when we're reminded of the character of God. What is God like in contrast to this prostitute? Our God is a God of salvation, and glory, and power. That's what makes him God. He alone saves. He alone is glorious. He alone is powerful. Goes on to say in verse 2, he alone is true. He alone is just. And the reason why the saints in heaven rejoice is his character is honored in this moment. He is proven to be good. He is proven to be valuable. But notice it says in verse 2, he just doesn't do it for the honor of his own name. He does it for his people to avenge the blood of the saints. God, in his grace, has chosen to be wedded to a people. He has always had a people. We'll get to it later. They're called his bride. And as a valiant groom, a valiant husband will defend the honor of his bride, God will do that. He will defend her. He will honor her. He will vindicate her. Think about this. Everyone who follows after the prostitute Babylon is effectively effectively looking at God, this glorious God, looking God in the face and saying, you're not enough. It would be like a husband heading out the door to a brothel, telling his wife, you're not enough. 
Finding satisfaction in Babylon and her goods rather than in the one true creator is like kids insulting their parents after opening their Christmas presents. But the character and honor and the glory and the goodness of God far surpasses any wife and far surpasses any parent. Therefore, the heinousness of dishonoring this God is incalculable. You can't get, we can't get our minds around it. And this is why the punishment, the, the future judgment of those who love Babylon and honor her will face an eternal conscience, infinite punishment, because God's character will be avenged and God's people will be avenged. And so when the saints see this, when they see God's honor vindicated and God's saints vindicated, they exult. They're captured in wonder. When we all love underdog stories, those are the ones that replay on ESPN Classic over and over and over again. And there's, they, they just capture you. Well, in some ways, the church is the greatest underdog story. And we win. Because he wins. <laughs> and we worship him. Years ago, there was a writer, mid-20th century, his name was Bruce Marshall. And though this quote gets misattached to many authors, he actually wrote it. Bruce Marshall once wrote, The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The reason why the prostitute is so successful is because our longings are legit. Right? The reason why her wares are attractive is because our desires are real. We are searching for satisfaction. We have real desires. But the, the reminder, this writer is right, is but you're unconsciously looking for God because only a good, gracious, glorious, powerful, saving God will ever satisfy your deepest desires. I mean, we live in what's called a hookup culture. I don't know if you read, any, there's, a, there's an interesting book called Hooked, and there's other books on this, but the hookup culture where people jump from one one-night stand to the other or one party to the other, it's actually destroying the relationships and lives of humans because what the hookup culture does is it undermines relationship and promise and covenant, and it leaves people empty and dry. And when that happens, the great prostitute Babylon is thrilled. Well, you don't just have to hook up with it sexually. We hook up with anything. You know, this quote says, when you're knocking on the door of a brothel, you're unconsciously looking for God. Well, when you turn on your television, you're unconsciously looking for God. When you smoke a cigarette, you're unconsciously looking for God. Even the good things, right? Even when you're calling a friend, you're unconsciously looking for God. When you're checking that, I don't know about you, but like when my, my, my pants vibrate, and, and I can shoot my phone, but it's in my, you know, like I'm itching to know who, who wants to talk to me? Who thinks I'm significant? Then I pull it out, and it's a Papa Murphy's coupon. Right? But all of these longings, all of these desires are these unconscious longings for the God who can actually meet them. But woe to us if we get satisfied with less than God, with this 
prostitute. Years ago, my favorite, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And this is where the Bible is heading, to a new world where King, the Lord Jesus is king, where there is new heavens and new earth, and you are given new bodies to enjoy all that is in store for you. And we hear about this. It's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Verse 4, more worship, more exaltation. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So this is where the Bible is moving, to this celebratory family meal with exaltation and delight in God through the Lamb. Notice it says, who's there? It says, servants are going to be there. They're the ones going to be there, and they're the ones praising and they're the servants who fear God, who fear God. What sort of servants? Both great and small. I, I, I love that, just the reminder that um, the collection of God's people will be made up of somebodies and nobodies, right? I mean, the apostles will be there. They're kind of somebody. I mean, Apostle Paul, he's big. Earlier or later in Revelation, you know, the names of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes, they get inscribed. My name's not there. Right, so I'm one of the small guys, and probably most of us are small guys, small ladies in the kingdom, but we're there, and we're there because we have served Jesus. We fear him. Not cowering fear, but worshipful fear, fear awe of a God who is like this. We're drawn to him. We're drawn to him to love him and to honor him. And at this gathering, there's just exaltation after exaltation. They can't stop singing. They can't stop praising. And in order to uh, make it even more enjoyable, they invite others to come praise. Right? And that's, people talk about praise is consummation is when you invite others to praise. And every guy knows this because you yell at the buddy who's in the bathroom when he misses that sweet play. You got to get out here before they do the replay. You have to see this. It's so amazing. You know, and the guy runs out and of course he didn't wash his hands. But he gets to see that little, that little picture of glory. And then the person who saw it first is now sharing the joy with the person who saw it second. In some ways, that's what's happening. They're saying, we're praising God. We're singing hallelujah. And then he turns to someone else. You praise God. All you servants who fear him. Because we're enjoying this God and what he's doing together. Verse 7. Well, verse 6. First, the Lord our God, our mighty, he's reigning. So all that, you know, in God's mysterious providence, evil and sin and Satan are at work in this world. And we'll never fully comprehend all the purposes behind that. 
We do know one day they will end. Their reign will stop. And God's full and free sovereign reign will begin. And we are in this in-between time. But one day God will reign, tears wiped away, all evil vanquished. Actually, by, by this point in the book of Revelation, uh, two beasts have been thrown down and killed. The prostitute has been thrown down and killed. And then in chapter 20, we're going after the dragon too. Right? This is what's happening in Revelation. Bit by bit, all of the enemies of God and his people are being brought to nothing. And so they're, they're praising this God who's now reigning and as they praise him, they also have this party. And it's called the Lamb's Wedding. That's key. This is the wedding of the lambs. This isn't Matt's party. It's not Todd's party or Sarah's party. This is Jesus' party. This is his wedding. The reason why I know this is Jesus is because of uh, chapter 1, it talks about the Lamb. Chapter 5, it talks about the Lamb. Uh, just some of the stuff in chapter 5 that is uh, worth recalling. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. What do we learn about this lamb? Well, we learn more about the lamb through more singing. So heaven is singing, and they sang a new song saying, You, this is the lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is the scroll of history. This is the scroll of God completing his work on earth, and Jesus is worthy to open that scroll, right? Only he can do this. Why is he worthy, though? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he gave his life for people. From every place on this earth, from every time and generation that will live, his blood was spilled for his people, for his bride. His blood brings them into the family. Verse 10, it says, He also makes them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. What what they're doing very, in just one verse is they're talking about this God, the Son of God, who went to the lowest point, which is death. And Philippians 2 does a nice job with the, the descent. It says, Jesus, who very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He took the very nature of his servant. He took on human flesh. He became obedient even unto death, even unto a cross. And then it goes on in Philippians 2 and says, Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names. This is what the angels are talking about. Worthy is the lamb who went all the way down to being slain and now has been vindicated. And now he receives power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Verse 13, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now, when the God who sits on the throne shares his glory with another, it means that he too is God. Right? This, is, this is where we get the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're all God because God does not share his honor with anyone but himself. And so Jesus is God. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is now the vindicated one. And he is the one that we have the privilege of worshiping forever and ever and ever. But that privilege came at a price, his blood. And so it says back in verse 7 of Revelation 19, verse 7, let us, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In God's mercy, he chose to have a bride. This was God's intent at the beginning. God created heavens and the earth. It was good. It was very good. And in this good creation, he had a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, that they were made to be in relationship with God for there to be fellowship and joy and intimacy and working together and just delighting in one another. But God's intent was frustrated by sin and evil in the world, and there was this brokenness. And the broken, I mean, I'm not sure who said it. I think it's um, G.K. Chesterton who said that uh, the doctrine of sin is the easiest provable doctrine. Right? You, we don't have to prove the reality of sin and fallenness in the world. We just have to go outside, and we see that there's, there's, there's certainly brokenness in our relationship with God, but we're broken against one another. I have done the most harmful things to the people that I love the most. I have said the most hurtful things to the people that I treasure the most. How is that possible? And it's because my relationship with God is broken. My relationship with, my, with humans are broken. My relationship with the world is broken. That's why it talks about uh, we deal with thorns and thistles. That's why things break. This is why... My dishwasher was leaking on Monday. The water was dripping into my basement to fall. <laughs> but God's intent, even, even, after the, even after the fall into sin, there's this wonderful promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. God points at this serpent who deceived his loved ones, and he says, you know what's going to happen, serpent? Someday, you're going to nip at the Messiah's heel, the king to come. You're going to nip. And then it says, but that Messiah, he ain't going down. In fact, he's going to crush your head. By the way, that is what happens in Revelation 20 when that dragon gets stomped. That's the end. That's when the serpent is finally crushed. And he is doing this because he... He wants to have a wedding. It's his wedding, but you get to come. He's the one who gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. He gets all the pomp. He gets all the press clippings. But you and I get to come. That's good enough. I mean, some people, I, I, I had a family member, they, they just paid an arm and a leg to go watch a basketball game just so they could be in the same building, right, of, of one of their heroes, right? That's a sense of what heaven will be like. That Jesus paid the whole price, we still get to come, and we get to be with the hero. Like, that's what's coming. 
And this is why the book of Revelation is full of singing. They're exulting in this. There's something amazing happening, and it's Jesus. And those who have trusted him and believe in him, they get to share in this joy. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah 62. This wedding was prophesied off and on in the scriptures, but about 3,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah talked about this commitment to God's people, the people of Zion, the people of heaven, God's true people. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5 say this. For Zion's sake, (coughs) excuse me, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will you be called deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, which means married. So no longer will you be the deserted and desolate people. You will be the delighted people married by the Lord. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Friends, if we can get our minds around the future of the church, your life will be transformed. You will live differently. You know what? You will die differently. One of the greatest movements of God in the English-speaking world was uh, the first Great Awakening, also known as the Methodist Revival. It was done through the ministry of George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. Tens of thousands of people became Christians. Many of them recommitted their lives to the Lord. One day, though, this is, one day John Wesley turned to his brother Charles and he said this, Brother, our people die well. If you know the future that it's awaiting you, you can die well. You don't have to fear it. You don't have to run from it. There's a dignity because you know that there's a wedding about to come. And if you have any doubt, if you jump back to Revelation 19, those last two verses uh, in this section 9 and 10, it says this, Then the angel said to me, Write this. I mean, maybe like John was like so blown away with what he was seeing, he might forget to write it down. You need to write this down. This is big. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added... These are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So these are the true words of God, says the angel. An angel so committed to God's glory and our good, he wouldn't let the apostle John give him false worship. He is committed. And then the invitation is, hold to this testimony. 
you know, a testimony is simply a statement given by a witness. And you don't have to read much news to read about false testimonies, but what's going on in Revelation 19, verse 9 and 10, is we're hearing an angel testifying to the truth of this future. Notice it's called then the testimony of Jesus, so Jesus himself has testified to the future. So too the Holy Spirit is the spirit behind all prophecy, and thus we can trust its validity too. And then add to that, we have the apostle John, who has recorded this so that we can know that it is true and certain. Jonathan Lehman writes, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and he gave his church that authority to march on the nations. His church will therefore advance like an army that cannot be stopped. The boundary lines of the nations won't stop it. The executive orders of presidents and prime ministers won't stop it. Not even the gates of hell itself will slow it down. There is a wedding, and it is coming and it's a wedding of the Lamb. I'll let this be closing. Uh, back in 1746, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and he's wanting us to treasure the Lamb in all that he's offering. Some of the words that Edwards wrote are this. Christ obtains his elect by conquest, for she was captive in the hands of dreadful enemies, and her Redeemer came into the world to conquer their enemies and rescue her out of their hands that she might be his bride. And then he adds, everything desirable and excellent in the union between an earthly bridegroom and bride is to be found in the union between Christ and his church. And that in an infinitely greater perfection and more glorious manner, there is infinitely more to be found in it than ever was found between the happiest couple in a conjugal relation or could be found if the bride and bridegroom had not only the innocence of Adam and Eve, but the perfection of angels. This is the Christ who offers himself to you. Do you love him? Do you long for him? Do you long for the wedding where he is all in all? It seems to me from this text there are two categories of people, people comfortable in the delights of Babylon and those longing for the wedding of the Lamb. And I think Revelation 19 is trying to slice the world into two halves. Are you comfortable with the delights of Babylon or are you longing for the wedding of the Lamb? I pray that we'd be a people who long. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament story of um, Isaac and Rebekah. And uh, Isaac is the son of Abraham. And Abraham was this patriarch that God called out of a, very, a land of comfort, Ur of Chaldeans, which was another name for Babylon. And Abraham left that and went to the land that God was calling him to. And he went in faith. And eventually, after some really cool stories, he, he and his uh, menopausal wife have a child in their old age, Isaac, the son of promise. But Isaac needs a woman. And there's this wonderful story of how God's going to get this woman. So Abraham sends a servant back to where the family had decided to chill out. And the servant goes to get Isaac a woman. 
read the story. It's wonderful details. But bottom line, the servant tells Rebecca and her family, God has called Abraham. God's going to bless Abraham. God's going to give Abraham a land. God's going to take care of him. Now, none of this has happened yet. But we believe God will keep his promises because he did send the son in the old age, so we think he'll give all the other ones. And what I love about Rebecca, he doesn't have to persuade her. He just, she just says, I will go. She's going to a wedding. She doesn't know the place. She only knows a little bit about the person, and yet she says, I will go. And she goes on this journey. In, in some ways, as Christians, we are the Rebecca. I will go. I've heard about this son of promise. I'm believing the promises. I've heard of the blessings. I haven't experienced them all, but I trust this God that he is good and that he will keep his word. And so we go. And we're moving toward a wedding. Now along the way, God has given us the Lord's Supper as what I would call an anticipatory meal. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of nice that this is, you know, really small cups and really small breads, but you guys don't think this is the final meal to come. It's just a snack. But what this meal symbolizes is that Christ has paid the entry ticket for you to get into that great and marvelous wedding. We get to feast. We get to feast. This is the lamb's meal, but this isn't the wedding supper of the lamb. And so if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you believe that he is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, and you have trusted him, and you believe that he has died for you, then you take this meal to remember his past death, and, the, and then you long for his future wedding. That's what we do at this meal. We proclaim his death until he returns. And so I'm going to pray. And I just encourage us as a church family uh, to receive this meal with deep longing. Because it's just, it's, it's, it's a pointer to a wedding that's coming. That's going to be beyond satisfying. This will hopefully leave you hungry. Stay hungry. But God will meet that hunger. Don't get satisfied here, this place, this world with those hungers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that your word goes out and for uh, centuries now, people have proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life, uh, that, that Jesus is the worthy one. He deserves all wealth and honor and glory and praise, that he is the lamb who's taken away the sins of the world, that he is the vindicated lamb who has resurrected and now is ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And so we thank you that we can remember the cross, that you gave your body and that you gave your blood to redeem a people for yourself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we're just one representation of your great purchase of your people. And so we thank you that we can remember you as your people today. We pray that this would nourish our souls and help us to be faithful in the days to come. In Christ's name, amen.